This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome to the Diabetes Knowledge into Practice podcast, bringing you news, views and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS, who have had no influence on the content or choice of faculty. Today, we're joined by Professor Naveed Sitar for a roundup of some of the key takeaways from the International Diabetes Federation Virtual Congress 2021, which took place between the 6th and the 11th of December. Professor Sitar is Professor of Metabolic Medicine at the University of Glasgow, and his disclosures are available in the episode notes. Okay, so um, let's talk about IDF. So firstly, I understand that as well as being the committee lead for the cardiovascular disease and hypertension stream, you also presented in some of the sessions. Firstly, one on heart failure and diabetes. Could you briefly summarise your presentation on that? Yes, certainly. Um, I effectively looked at the evidence of the risks of heart failure in people with diabetes, and I was able to show national data from Scotland would suggest that in high-income countries, the risk for diabetes, the risk for heart failure in people with diabetes is roughly double. Um, and it's there from an early, that excess risk is there from an early age and, and, and goes up um, um, over time. But the risk in people with type 1 diabetes is even higher. It's about two and a half, threefold higher. I think the other pieces of evidence I was able to show was that some of the risk factors for heart failure, we didn't fully understand. Certainly diabetes is a risk factor, but within diabetes, people who carry more weight are living with higher levels of obesity have even higher risk factor. And that also, if you develop type two diabetes at a younger age, your risk is even greater. So, so for example, somebody developing diabetes under the age of say 50, their risk for heart failure is sometimes fivefold higher compared to people without diabetes. Whereas if you develop diabetes in your 80s, your risk might only be 1.2-fold higher. So heart failure risks are higher in diabetes, but they're higher even in much higher in younger onset people, and they're even higher in people with type 1. And obesity is certainly a risk factor for diabetes in type 2, along with hypertension, along with kidney disease. Um, and there is a hemodynamic aspect to the risk in type 2, which I don't think we fully understood until we saw the results of some of the new drug trials. And finally, I think I was able to explain why people with, living with type 1 have an even higher risk of heart failure uh, by the time they get to middle age. And it's really because um, having type 1 onset, which is the average age is about 14, by the time they get to middle age, they've often had four, four decades of hyperglycemia. And if it's not well controlled, high sugar levels can irritate blood vessels, lead to kidney damage, and also irritate blood vessels that lead to ischemic heart disease, and so the combination is a higher risk of heart damage due to both direct damage from high sugar levels, but also indirectly from kidney disease. And it's the fact that people with type 1 who develop type 1 develop it about four decades on average younger than people who develop type 2. And I think people often forget that. So those were the kind of main concepts that I covered. Other people then went on to discuss very nicely the new evidence for the SGLT2 inhibitors in both the prevention and treatment of heart failure. Um, and then other colleagues further discussed how that these new trials have also now changed clinical guidelines in people with diabetes and heart failure, as well as people without diabetes and heart failure, and how SGLT2 inhibitors are now one of the four classes of tablets which are foundational in the treatment of heart failure, whether or not you have diabetes. And also, 
whether we should be using them earlier in people with diabetes to prevent heart failure as well, because heart failure prevalence is not going down in diabetes. It's probably either stayed the same or, or gone up in contrast to what we see for the prevalence for ischemic heart disease, which has gone down. So that there is a need to tackle better heart failure in people with diabetes, and we now have better tools to do so. And in a related session, one of my colleagues, Professor John Cleland, discussed how we'd have a brilliant biomarker called NT-ProBMP, which is, uh, can be used to diagnose heart failure, but also to detect people at higher risk for future heart failure, and how that could be used more widely uh, in clinical practice to determine who, uh, which of our patients deserves particular drugs, and which of our patients perhaps even deserves better treatment for lipids, blood pressure, and a whole range of things to tackle um, prevention of heart failure and coronary heart disease. And so there's a lot going on in the heart failure space in diabetes, um, and a greater understanding of the fact that it's more relevant in our patients, a greater understanding we've got better tools, a greater understanding of the risk factors, and a greater need for developing better algorithms for how we detect that risk both clinically and how we mitigate that risk with using the tools that have now emerged to tackle and prevent heart failure. And I think that is a very exciting uh, arena for the whole of uh, diabetes and heart failure area. That was a great summary. Thank you. Um, moving sideways uh, into cardiovascular risks in general in diabetes, I think you also spoke at a session looking at how what we've learnt about cardiovascular risk across the globe. Could you again provide a little summary of that? Yes, certainly. So. Professor Sarah Wilde gave a brilliant summary of what the data show in Europe, essentially that heart disease rates in people living with diabetes have come down substantially, particularly from around about 2000 to 2010 or, or you know, those kind of areas. Um, and there's been perhaps an even uh, more than a 50% reduction in the risks of heart attacks, um, maybe slightly lesser reduction in the risk of stroke. And that evidence is really clear because we've been treating um, people with diabetes better with statins and blood pressure medications. We've been diagnosing the disease a little bit earlier uh, and we've, been, we've got more tools to lower sugar levels. And on the background, smoking levels have been coming down in people with diabetes and without diabetes. But particularly, the aggressive treatment of cholesterol and blood pressure and early diagnosis have conspired to reduce heart attack rates and stroke rates in people with diabetes substantially in high-income countries in Europe over the last few decades. We then went on to have a talk from uh, Professor Mohan from India, and he described that there's a substantial rise in diabetes in India, that people, with people who are of Asian origin developed diabetes about 10 years earlier, even at a lower BMI, but partly that's because the Asian phenotype is that they carry more fat around their center, particularly waist circumference, but they tend to also have lower muscle mass. And that conspires the Asians to develop diabetes at younger age, at lower body mass index. And also, they also have a bigger rise in sugar levels through the risk area of pre-diabetes to diabetes. And as a result, diabetes rates are skyrocketing in India. In India, therefore, the, the big agendas are to diagnose the disease and to provide um, the simple treatments. And he used what's known as the ABCD, criteria A for A1C, think of it A1C, B for blood pressure, C for LDL cholesterol, cholesterol, and D was discipline. And that included things like 
you know, talking about lifestyle, smoking, diet, activity levels. So ABCD is the mantra that he mentioned in India, but they have a huge challenge going forward and substantial rises uh, in the prevalence of diabetes in India. The third talk um, then came from uh, uh, Professor Will Herrington, who's from Oxford. Um, I think he's an associate professor, but we'll give an excellent talk of the challenges in, in Mexico as a, as a country over um, sort of in the kind of middle uh, to low to middle income countries. And in Mexico, um, people with diabetes, certainly 10, 20 years ago, certainly 20 years ago, were diagnosed late. Their average hemoglobin A1 was substantially higher than they are in Europe. In fact, one in three had a hemoglobin A1C above 10%, which is substantially elevated. And their cardiovascular risks were not two to three-fold higher as they were in Europe at that stage. They were about five to 10-fold higher, substantially elevated. And part of the reason was late diagnosis, low treatment of blood pressure, and virtually no treatment of cholesterol. So the big agenda in Mexico is actually picking up people with diabetes, diagnosing it in the first place, particularly sooner, treating them with sugar, and the average hemoglobin A1C has come down by about 1% over the last uh, decade. More people are now being treated with blood pressure treatment, about half, and the rise in cholesterol treatment has gone up from 1%, so only one in 100 were getting statins, to about 14%. Now, you can still contrast that with what's happening in Europe. In Europe, around about 80% of people with diabetes get cholesterol tablets. In Mexico, they're now up 14%, so substantially below. And I summarized the totality of evidence saying that actually in high income countries, we've done very well with cholesterol, blood pressure, glucose lowering, earlier diagnosis. We've now got new tools, SGLT2 inhibitors, GLP1 receptor agonists to further lower risk. We've also got new tools to prevent diabetes in terms of remission, um, low calorie diets, et cetera, and also prevention. Uh, but that the big target in the rest of the world was picking up diabetes earlier on and a cheap prescription of a glucose-lowering tablet, whether it's predominantly metformin, cheap statin, and cheap blood pressure, and providing sustainable um, levels of those so that many people with diabetes are picked up and given those three major platforms to lower risk. And that is the big agenda needing, needing to happen around the world so that we can keep people with diabetes uh, living longer and prevent them from dying prematurely from cardiovascular disease. So those were the kind of summaries. Great, thank you. And then I know you also chaired a session on nutrition and cardiometabolic health. Could you summarise that briefly? Um, yeah, so in terms of nutrition, I think one of the big um, new paradigms that Professor Mike Lean, who's one of my senior colleagues in Glasgow, who co-led the direct trial, was that actually we now know that diabetes is predominantly a disease of excess fat. And that actually, if you remove that excess fat with low calorie diets, um, you, can, you can reverse diabetes in many individuals. Um, in direct, we saw around about 40% or so people with type two had no longer had type two diabetes after one year and around about one third after two years when we had, had them lose about 10 kilograms in weight. And that was a fantastically new paradigm that we can achieve this in general practice. Um, and in addition, if you then looked at people who lost more than 15 kilograms uh, one year, about almost nine in 10 no longer had type two diabetes. So diabetes in the vast, vast majority type two is a disease of excess fat. And if you can remove that excess fat, their diabetes undergoes remission. 
or reversal for a period of time. And Mike Lean explained uh, that that paradigm has now been accepted uh, as a tool, new tool to, to reverse diabetes early on in people in high income countries, but it's also traveling to many other countries. And he described um, how in Nepal, they're about to do a trial using not the low calorie drinks because they're expensive, but actually adapting local foods for, local, for, for a low calorie meal and how they could potentially use that as an intervention to help people undergo diabetes reversal. And his major point was focus on foods and eating patterns, not necessarily on macronutrients. And that how, for example, with, uh, of, with foods, we can adapt, for example, in Scotland, using porridge or lentil soup as, as a way to, to mimic the low calorie diets that sell sold by commercial providers as a potential, and in Nepal, using other types of foods as well to potentially do this. So um, the big agenda in, in Professor Lean's eyes was actually more on reversal of diabetes and how that would be a major new tool in the tackle against diabetes. And the second talk uh, was done by a colleague called Sabita Sudama Mutha, who's from the Netherlands. And Sabita really focused on um, one particular nutrient, saturated fatty acids. And she again showed that we mustn't focus on a nutrient per se, but rather the foods that nutrients come in. So she explained how saturated fatty acids seem to be more toxic when they were um, in red meats, for example, but that their toxicity was not the same. In fact, it wasn't necessarily apparent if they were, for example, foods like uh, dairy. So he again went through the point that saturated fatty acids are not a homogeneous group and that their nature is different in different foods. They are more toxic in red meats, partly because they're much longer chain and, 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 and more harmful, whereas they may not necessarily be harmful in, uh, and their nature may not be harmful in other foods like dairy foods. Um, so again, her message was focus on the whole food rather than the particular nutrient as well. So the two messages chimed in beautifully. And again, I think it tells us that, that we've learned a lot more about how uh, to understand nutritional elements and the link between obesity and excess weight and diabetes. And that actually going forward, there is a lot more we can do in terms of how we advise people about nutrition, both to prevent diabetes, to reverse diabetes, uh, and also to improve um, the risk of cardiovascular disease by focusing on particular nutrients and, and dietary patterns and food patterns rather than on actually macronutrients per se. And those were the key messages there. Brilliant. And finally, do you have any other highlights or key takeaways that you found particularly pertinent from the conference this year? Yeah, no, there's a lot to be, you know, if you, people have a chance, there's a lot to, to, you know, to look at back in the conference. I would certainly recommend there was brilliant sessions on lipids. Now, for many years, we've had statins as the only major lipid um, that we've had. But since then, we've had azitamide, PCS can inhibitors, and there's new lipids like pentadoic acid. So if anybody wanted a refresher on lipids, there's a brewing session on lipids. If anyone wanted a refresher on blood pressure and the new data that's emerged on blood pressure, there was, again, brilliant talks on blood pressure and blood pressure targets and how blood pressure is simply another risk factor for cardiovascular disease, and that treating it when risk is high, regardless of what the level is, will reduce that risk. Kazim Rahimi did a brilliant talk on that, and I think, again, it, you know he's leading the field in some of the blood pressure areas. And finally, there was a debate on aspirin, which I haven't uh, witnessed, but it was done by some world-class colleagues. Again, um, trying to place aspirin in the, in, in the kind of algorithms and where it should be placed 
still is a subject of debate, but with more emerging data, I think colleagues are coalescing on, on people at higher risk and how we can use aspirin in some patients to prevent cardiovascular disease. But again, a, a wonderful debate, and I would again recommend colleagues go and, and have a look at that. So lots of stuff in established risk factors, uh, lots of stuff in new uh, tools, um, whether the new drugs or dietary uh, was covered in the, con in, in, the, in the conference. And I do recommend people go and look at that. This brings us to the end of the episode. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the podcast on your favourite app, leave us a review or recommend us to your colleagues. You can also stay up to date by following us on Twitter at DKI Practice or connecting on LinkedIn. And you can find links to these in the episode notes. We look forward to joining you next time.